0: The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers.
1: This week on Science for the People, we're talking about weapons, chemical weapons to be precise. We're spending the hour with Chris Kramer, a chemist who studies chemical weapons and how we get rid of them. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, science writer at Science News and Society for Science and the Public. It sounds like something out of a spy novel or a movie. An old man, an ex-spy, sits with his daughter on a park bench. Within minutes, they are both unconscious, poisoned by a rapid-acting nerve agent that's like nothing anyone has seen before. This may, in fact, be the plot of a spy novel. I don't know. But it is also something that happened in real life. On March 4th, 2018, ex-Russian spy Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia were poisoned on a park bench by an agent called Novichok both of them did live through the experience, though it was a very close call. But what is this Novichok stuff? The word Novichok literally means newcomer, and that's really unhelpful. It is a relative newcomer, though, in the world of poisons. Here to get us introduced to the latest in modern chemical weapons technology is Chris Kramer. In a former life, He served in the United States Army, where he helped study chemical weapons. Now he's a chemist at the University of Minnesota, where he also studies how to get rid of or reverse the effects of chemical weapons, including nerve agents like Novichok. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us.
0: It's a pleasure to be here.
1: I wanted to start with a little bit of basic terminology. When we talk about chemical weapons, what do we mean?
0: So chemical weapons are actually defined by something called the Chemical Weapons Convention to which many countries are signatories. And there is something called the OPCW, the Office for the Prevention of Chemical Weapons, I think that stands for. Uh, and so there are schedules, if you like, of which molecules are defined to be chemical weapons, and they serve various purposes. They they tend to be lethal, uh, and their lethality happens in different ways. So you mentioned a nerve agent, and that has a certain kind of lethality that involves interfering with the nervous system. There are also things called blister agents, blood agents, choking agents. Um, All of these can be used in warfare as uh, a means to degrade the enemy, if you will. Uh, They can also be used to deny terrain because you wouldn't like to go through it after it's been contaminated. Um, And some of them actually are used against civilians. That's not forbidden by the Chemical Weapons Convention. Uh, The best example of that is tear gas. So it turns out you can't use tear gas in a war, but it's okay to use it on your own population.
1: TIL. Wow. Now, people yeah. have been making these chemical weapons for a very long time. How long do you think people have been using chemical weapons against each other?
0: You know, it depends exactly how you define it. I'd say, you know, in the, the first broad scale use in chemical warfare was really World War One and the... The Germans were the first to employ a sort of chemical core, you might say, and experimented with chlorine gas, for example. So it's, it's a fascinating example of the dichotomy of science to some extent that uh, – uh Haber who is famous for the Haber Bosch process which makes ammonia from nitrogen and you know feeds the world essentially we would have a much smaller population without that process he also was the one who led a lot of the chemical weapons research in World War 1 and uh actually launched chemical weapons against the allies so interesting as i say contributions, different contributions. But if you were to you know, go way, way back, I think there are examples of of some of the ancients employing Greek fire, for instance, was uh, you could regard it as a chemical weapon in a way, although it was designed also to be pyrophoric. Uh, There was also use of biological weapons, uh, which are closely related to chemical weapons in some sense. So I think it might be hard to set the original time point.
1: Yeah, you could poison wells and you know, throw poisoned blankets and and things like that. People have been doing that for a really long time. Yes. And when you talk about the um, Haber-Bosch process, is that correct? Mm-hmm. You're talking about the process that actually ends up producing industrial fertilizers, which Precis- is how we feed the world.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. So it takes nitrogen out of the air, it makes ammonia, and ammonia itself is a fertilizer, or it can be converted to other nitrogen-containing fertilizers.
1: Now, let's switch to talking a little bit about nerve agents. When we talk about nerve agents, what exactly does that mean? What are we talking about?
0: Mm -hmm. So when one of your muscles does something, it tends to be in response to a neurotransmitter having been released by a nerve. And a receptor at the other side sees that neurotransmitter and it, you know, contracts a muscle, helps you breathe, beats your heart, whatever that might be. And a nerve agent is designed to interfere with the process in a certain way. And that way is that after the neurotransmitter arrives and your muscle has done whatever it was supposed to do, there's an enzyme that eliminates that neurotransmitter. So you don't just keep doing that. And that enzyme is called acetylcholinesterase. It's a long name, but it basically means that it takes the neurotransmitter, acetylcholine, and it breaks it down. Uh, that's what the ACE means in an in a enzyme name. It means destroy something. But if if the enzyme acetylcholinesterase can't destroy the neurotransmitter, you will just keep twitching that muscle, for example. Uh, and that can be bad, very bad, as a matter of fact. And so nerve agents actually attack acetylcholinesterase and they modify it in a way that is uh, very difficult to reverse. So essentially, they shut down your ability to discard neurotransmitter to get rid of it. And as a result, you will, uh, you know, a classic symptom of nerve agent poisoning is convulsions because all your muscles are firing from neurotransmitters.
1: Yikes, that sounds terrifying. <laughs> and one of those nerve agents is Novichok, the infamous uh, kind of new-ish, Uh, chemical weapon that was used against the ex-spy. Where does that come from? What do we know about it?
0: Yeah, so, you know, there's, to to say it is one thing, Novichok, as though it were a single molecule, is a little bit misleading. It's it's tended to mean kind of a family of compounds that were studied in Russia uh, within the last 20 years or so, and were designed to have improved characteristics compared to nerve agents that had been around for longer. And by improved, that could mean improved lethality, but it could also mean improved ability to store it, um, improved binary capability, because usually you'd like not to carry around actual nerve agent. That's kind of dangerous. So many agents were designed to to these B- binary agents, they were called, that is, it was by the mixing of two things that themselves were relatively innocuous, it would create this lethal agent. And as a result, you could transport the two things separately, for example. Um, so the compounds that were developed, we don't know a huge amount about. Most of it is taken from the notebooks of someone who worked in the Russian system and then left, came uh, out of that country into Western countries, I think is in Canada now, but I'm not positive about that, and had written many notes and described many of the molecules, but it was really quite a broad class and family of molecules.
1: And so when you talk about these two molecules that combine together what kind of molecules are they like how how do you build something like this Mm -hmm.
0: so it's a little bit you know making molecules can be like putting together blocks there are certain we, we say functionality in molecules so there are certain bits of molecules that are called functional groups and some functional groups react well with other functional groups and that's how you build a molecule up from constituent parts And so in the case of nerve agents, one part tends to contain some phosphorus and something reactive at the phosphorus atom. And the other part tends to contain either an oxygen or a nitrogen that's prepared to react with that functionality. And when it does, it generates a new bond between phosphorus and either oxygen or sulfur in some of the more classic nerve agents. And then in the Novichok agents, it's generally a nitrogen atom. Uh, And once that bond is formed, you have created the molecule, which is highly toxic and reacts with acetylcholinesterase to disable it.
1: And so these two separate chemicals can, in some cases, be stored separately. And then you combine them together and boom, it's nasty. Mm -hmm.
0: And so that combination can even take place in a shell, for instance. So an artillery shell has two compartments and then on launch, it mixes the agent and then there's a burst and you've got agent dispersed.
1: And you mentioned the inclusion of phosphorus, which is pretty important. And so Novichok is an organophosphorus compound and related to other nerve agents uh, like VX and sarin gas. Um, and I was really struck by the term organophosphorus because the first thing I think of when I think of phosphorus is fertilizer. And it turns out, when we talked a little bit in the beginning about World War One and the development of the Haber Bosch process, a lot of nerve agents are related to fertilizer.
0: <laughs> yeah, I would. I, I, hmm. I'm not sure. I would say related to fertilizer per se. Although, for you certainly need phosphorus. Plants need phosphorus. Um, I would say it's more related to pesticides. Mm, and, yes. and you Sorry. can call nerve agent a pesticide. It depends on what you define to be a pest. Um, you know, people are mean to each other sometimes. But the, you know, the fundamental thing that connects all of these is that biological systems traffic in phosphorus compounds all the time. All of our energy conversion involves phosphate hydrolysis, making phosphate bonds. And so enzymes are used to uh, being phosphorylated, dephosphorylated. It controls their function. And so it's no surprise that by using that kind of functionality and adjusting its reactivity in a way, you can affect certain enzymes in profound ways.
1: So people, and that was my mistake, I said fertilizer. I meant pesticides, very different things, <laughs> though used in somewhat kind of similar circumstances. Um, so chemists take these pesticides and kind of adapt them to make new compounds that are specific for humans. What are some of the differences that chemists have to think about when adapting something that's like, for example, a pesticide to something that can be used in people?
0: You know, it's a, it's a subtle business uh, that tends to have to do with the specifics of the enzyme that one is going after. So enzymes have these very detailed shapes, if you like a lot, So a lot of this would be what we might call kind of a lock and key interaction between the small molecule and the big enzyme. And so different organisms, their enzymes have different shapes. And as a result, you may find that a molecule that's very effective at getting into a certain site in an enzyme in an insect is uh, has no effect at all on humans or it, it is also poisonous but at a much higher dosage, that would typically be the case. So most pesticides are not particularly friendly to people. You would not want to you know, bathe in them, but they are so much more lethal against insects that we find them useful.
1: Okay. And we were talking about Novichok specifically. It's a nerve agent. Um, that is kind of derived from these organophosphorus kind of compounds. Um, and you mentioned that it breaks down acetylcholinesterase, which helps kind of rid the space between molecules of acetylcholine. So if you're, you've got Novichok and it's hitting the acetylcholinesterase, what kind of symptoms does this produce?
0: Yeah, so and I'll I'll just clarify a bit. I don't I hate to say breaks down because that makes it sound like it chops the enzyme up or something. R- really what it does is it it modifies the active site of the enzyme in such a way that it just can't do what its function is anymore. Kind in of gums pr- it up a little bit? Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. And in principle, you can regenerate it. And that's what a lot of nerve agent treatments attempt to do. But the, the that's the function is to just go in and, and disable it. In terms of the symptoms, so I mentioned convulsions, for instance, uh, pinpoint pupils is a general indication of potential nerve agent poisoning. Uh, foaming at the mouth is, uh, established. It, you know, difficulty breathing. Um, the, The symptoms, of course, haven't been studied all that extensively because this isn't the sort of thing you can really do a clinical study on. So I can't
1: imagine why.
0: Yeah, we know what happens, let's say, to goats and pigs and uh, the animals that have been used in testing. I think the, the data for humans is less well organized.
1: And how powerful is it? How potent is it?
0: Uh, in their pure form, nerve agents are exquisitely potent. So uh, milligrams per kilogram are, are lethal. And most of them are uh, can be absorbed through the skin. Uh, some of them are very volatile so that they can be inhaled. And as a result, uh, it's possible to get a lethal dosage fairly easily.
1: And I was really struck when doing some reading that you sent me on um, nerve agents about how much they differ from kind of the classical chemical weapons that many of us may think of. So, for example, they differ from things like mustard gas, which is probably what many people think about when they think about chemical weapons because of that famous use in the trenches of World War I and, of course, in Wonder Woman. Um, so can you talk about mustard gas a little bit? How is it Different.
0: Mm-hmm. Sure. So mustard gas, um, which is a really bad name actually, because it's not a gas. It's uh, it, you know has some volatility, but mostly it's a viscous liquid. Uh, it is a so-called blister agent, and so its mode of activity has nothing to do with acetylcholinesterase. To be honest, its mode of activity still is not all that well understood, but it's it's a very powerful alkylating agent, which is to say that it goes around and it looks for uh, molecules that it can react with. And again, it reacts with certain kinds of functionality. This is the bond-making thing we, we mentioned. Uh, some molecules it can react with turn out to be the bases in your DNA, uh, although it's not clear that that's why it causes blistering. But just by, by experiment, we know that it It causes very severe blisters when you're exposed to it, so huge, enormous blisters will appear on the skin. Um, It's actually not necessarily designed to be lethal. It's designed instead to so damage individual soldiers that they become incapable, and in fact, it then ties up other soldiers who have to take them back to hospitals, for example. Um, And it's a terrain denial uh, agent, if you like, because once it has been spread out on terrain, It's reasonably persistent because it's not super volatile. And obviously, you don't want to walk through it unless you had a lot of protective gear on.
1: And mustard gas, when I was looking at some of the chemical structures, it has chlorine in it. Is it related to chlorine gas, which was also used in World War One? Or is that different?
0: It's not, that's more a coincidence, I guess I would say. So the chlorine that is in the mustard gas is why it's particularly reactive with the things that it, uh, it modifies. And that, but that chlorine leaves as chloride, which is what's in table salt. So chlorine gas, on the other hand, the mechanism of its effect is quite different. Chlorine gas is nasty, as anybody who knows, a sw- who has a swimming pool, uh, knows, because if you put chlorine in your pool, you have to be careful with that so you don't make chlorine gas. But it's a, it's a strong oxidant. Basically, it damages your lungs through a completely different mechanism.
1: Okay. So chlorine gas just straight up damages the lungs as like an inhalant. Exactly. Okay. And you mentioned, so for example, you mentioned mustard gas is a blister agent. Um, and sarin and Novichok are nerve agents. What other kind of agents are there?
0: There are things called choking agents. Um, Those have not been used much. There was a little bit of stockpiling in the Gulf War, uh, but not necessarily employment. And they can... They can have arsenic as a basis. Um, there are so-called blood agents, and so hydrogen cyanide was explored as a agent, predominantly in World War One, and it causes. Uh, why is it called a blood agent? Well, you, people would be observed to be bleeding extensively once it had been inhaled. So, cyanide, of course, has a long history as a. Uh, deadly uh, substance that can be used in poisoning. So many of these older agents from World War One were sort of abandoned for modern military use because they were gases, for example. Because it turns out if the wind changes direction, suddenly your uh, attack becomes uh, something you need to defend against. Uh, and instead, it's, it's better to have less volatile things that you feel like you can maybe control where it's going to go.
1: Yeah, that actually, this is A terribly morbid thing to think about but when chemists are designing chemical weapons you mentioned you know if it's a gas you kind of have to worry about the direction the wind is blowing what kind of things do people think about when they're designing these weapons
0: Mm. so one one point to make of course is that Other than the Novichok developments that have recently shown up in the news, and even that was research from some time ago, it's not clear that many places are continuing to design chemical weapons, in part because it's not clear that any remaining optimization needs to be done. The stuff we have is already pretty nasty and effective, but the... The figures of merit, if you will, would include things like stability. Once you've made it, can you store it? Because if it breaks down very quickly, suddenly you've got a mess on your hands. It's no longer useful to you, and you have to get rid of it somehow. Um, obviously, lethality matters. uh, And so if your goal is to kill a lot of people, you'd like it to function at low levels in the body uh, and but as I mentioned maybe your goal isn't to kill a lot of people maybe it's to injure a lot of people because that renders your foe equally ineffective maybe even more ineffective Um, so the issue of volatility comes up and you can actually imagine it going either way from a strategic uh, consideration let's say that you would like to remove A defender from terrain that you want to go through yourself subsequently, well, then you'd like to use an agent that will be readily degraded by environmental conditions. Maybe it's very, very volatile. Maybe it is a gas. In any case, it's gone after a few hours, and you've wiped out the enemy and you proceed through on your merry way. Uh, The alternative is that you actually want to deny some terrain for a very long time, because maybe you want to defend your flank while you're moving forward. And so you make that terrain very, very dirty. And while you can't go through it, neither can the other side. And so that may have strategic value, too. Then you would want something very non-volatile, um, you know, some viscous, nasty liquid. And it is very difficult to decontaminate terrain, as as you might imagine. So it it depends a bit on what the goal is.
1: And you mentioned, you know, we were talking about um, nerve agents like Novichok and sarin. Um one of their features if you will um is that they go right through protective equipment. So how do you design a chemical to do that? How does a how does a chemical weapon go through all of the, you know, special suits and gas
0: masks? Well, actually I'm not I'm not sure I would agree with you on on that in terms of going through protective equipment. What I would say is that certain kinds of protective equipment are more effective against some kinds of agents than others. Um but the the current uh, chemical Protective suits, if you will, that are issued to people in the military are generally pretty effective. They have um, layers of substances, some of which are as boring as activated charcoal. But in any case, that can intercept a lot of agent, you know, there there may be a limit if you are exposed to a huge amount, eventually, you'll break down your protective capability. Uh, the filters that occur in protective masks can be very effective. Uh, it's I have actually been in protective equipment a long time ago and in a facility where they then open up some sort of an agent to prove to you that you won't twitch and die. So modern day protective equipment is pretty good. It's very hard to issue to everyone on the planet. Uh, so, you know, these weapons of, of terror, basically, if they're used against civilian populations can still be enormously effective, but the military does have Doctrine and uh, equipment that can be used in a defensive mode.
1: So hold on a minute. You were in a protective suit, and they opened a thing <laughs> in yeah, front of you.
0: Little GB, little Saren.
1: Oh my goodness! Why? Uh,
0: to inspire confidence in the uh, in the effectiveness of the protective gear. How how'd you feel? I was pretty confident. We'd tested the gear in a lot of other situations. So typically, you know, you start by. Somebody puts on the protective mask and you wave some banana oil in front of them. Amyl acetate, a chemist would call that. And you can't smell a thing. It doesn't get through the filters. And then they put you in a tent full of tear gas. And again, you know, no effect. Although they do make you then take off the mask, inhale, and try to say your name before they let you out. And then it has a very powerful effect. Most people can't do that. And then you stand facing in the wind so that the... Uh, CS, that which is tear gas, will blow away from your face and eyes and nose, which are streaming uh, all sorts of fluids. Um, And so once you've seen that it's effective that way, you're not necessarily terrified to walk in where they open yet another chemical compound that doesn't get through.
1: Well, on that incredibly charming note, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this.
0: Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect
2: with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show.
1: Welcome back. We're here today with Chris Kramer, a chemist at the University of Minnesota, who is here to guide us through all sorts of terrifying things about chemical weapons. Now, Chris, we talked a little bit earlier about the protective gear that people use to protect themselves from chemical weaponry, and you mentioned that some suits are protective against a lot of different agents, like, for example, tear gas and sarin. And we tend to usually value the fabrics that we wear for their breathability, like Egyptian cotton. Obviously, that would not be a positive thing <laughs> when you're facing a chemical weapon. What kind of things do scientists do to make cloth, for example, more of a barrier to these agents?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it's a it's a really good point you bring up. The reason most soldiers really hate to do exercises. In what the army calls mop gear. And I did look it up. It's mission oriented protective posture. But in any case, is that it is absolutely not breathable and overheating is uh, a, a huge problem. So people will have uh, heat exhaustion and heat stroke potentially, depending on the, on the outside environment. And so commanders, when they do these kinds of exercises, have to exercise a lot of care to make sure that uh, in a training environment, they aren't actually injuring people. And so the the way that the the protective equipment works for the most part is to essentially try to create an impermeable barrier, right? So the various agents cannot get to those parts of you where they are designed to have an effect. So for the skin, if you like, you're wearing some kind of a suit that either is impregnated with a lot of Essentially, things that just try to absorb, adsorb, absorb. Chemists use that uh, sort of in a similar way. Uh, the agent, that is, it sticks to it, and charcoal is a good example of something like that. So, just activated carbon gloms onto a bunch of stuff, and it, it doesn't get through until it overwhelms however much carbon there might be. um Also, on the hands and on the feet, for instance, you basically wear a really thick rubber and that too is impermeable to most of these compounds. Finally, for the for your ability to inhale, you have some protective mask that has filters. The filters themselves also contain these substances that are designed to absorb the compounds and potentially react with them, with some of them, in order to break them down. Uh, and you do have to replace those filters after a certain amount of time. You also have to replace uh, the mop suits, if you like, after a certain amount of time because they may be becoming overwhelmed with all the stuff that they already have defended against.
1: I This is kind of a bizarre question that only just occurred to me out of left field. Are there any sensors in these suits that might be able to tell you what kind of chemical weapon you're facing? Um, because you mentioned, for example, that some of the chemicals can react with some of the filters um could it then for example i don't know light up a light or release a smell to make you say ah there's vx out there
0: Mm -hmm. so i'm not sure if it's built into modern suit technology there certainly are kits that are issued to individual soldiers that are designed to identify the specific chemical weapons and so if you see, uh, you know, some liquid that's been dispersed by a bomblet, for example, uh, you can use this kit to sample that liquid and try to assess, is it a, is it a blister agent? Is it a nerve agent, for example? It tends to be that these kits are issued primarily to specialists in chemical weapons. So there's a, there's a part of the U.S. Army, for instance, that's called the Chemical Corps, and that's what the, the soldiers in it are specifically trained in. But uh, in general, this, this could be made available within a, a given theater of operations. There are also detectors that uh, units carry that uh, sample the air, if you like, and based on – they have inside them a little mass spec, mass spectrogram. Um, and so they look for characteristic peaks that would be created in a mass spec – Buy some of these compounds and they also can identify uh, nerve agents, for example, in that way. It's a little tricky, of course, because you want to be sure you don't have false positives. Very bad if everybody has to go into mop gear because a bunch of diesel fuel got spilled. Um, but the, that's a design principle for how to make these detectors is that they can be s- reasonably selective in terms of identifying agents versus all the other stuff that might be in a combat environment. So,
1: the chemical core might have these kits um and might, you know, find an area where a chemical weapon has been. And you mentioned that sometimes you need to go through an area where a chemical weapon has been. Mm-hmm. And while people want to deny territory during a war, they may want to use that territory afterward. Cleaning up this stuff is a problem, because you can't just get out your all-purpose cleaner <laughs> and, you know, some paper towels.
0: Absolutely right. Decontamination is uh, an enormous chore.
1: So what are some of the factors that chemists need to think about when they're trying to decontaminate an area?
0: Yeah. So one aspect is, you know, what was the agent? Because that's going to dictate how persistent you expect the contamination to be. So if you know that it was an extremely volatile agent, whatever the the type of agent might have been, and it's the desert, and the temperature has been in the 90s, and that was two weeks ago, the odds that there's anything there are vanishingly small. On the other hand, if you know it was VX, for example, which is a non-volatile, super viscous agent, that stuff sticks around a long time. And you also have to worry about the fact that you know, it's not a lab where it's sitting pure in a flask or something. Instead, it's it fell on canvas and asphalt and trees and absorbed into things that are absorbent. And now you have to figure out how to decontaminate all of that.
1: And people have, you know, been poisoning each other with chemical weapons for a very long time. <laughs> um, and therefore, they've been fighting the leftovers of those chemical weapons for a long time. Uh, people actually did fight the leftovers of mustard gas. Uh, or mustard liquid in Mm -hmm. World War I. What kind of stuff did they do then?
0: Well, it's true that mustard was a particular problem in a sense because the ground during World War I was, in the trenches at least, was just this huge mud pit that had been ground up by artillery shells and people. And then mixing in the mustard created this you know, viscous sludge, which included mustard, which was remarkably persistent. Um, in terms of what you do about it, you know, generally what people hope they can do about it is just wait it out. Um, just don't go there. There are still regions in France, I believe, where there are warning signs up that you should not go into that area. Uh, sometimes that's an unexploded ordnance, but there's also sections that uh, are believed to still have potential uh, lethal agents. Or in this case, maybe not lethal, but at least dangerous. If you do want to decon, there are certain agents you can use. It's difficult when you know it's the terrain, because really all you can do is scrape that earth up, uh move it somewhere, maybe try to mix it with something that'll decontaminate it. That's why in the case of actual ground, maybe it's if you can avoid it, that's the best thing. But the the decontamination agents that are used when you you know have agent you can sort of see on surfaces or the like, they're Designed to break those bonds that were, so I mentioned when you have a binary agent, for instance, you make this new bond and suddenly it's very effective against your acetylcholinesterase. So for a nerve agent, the best decon is to break that bond before it gets to acetylcholinesterase. And now it's no longer effective. Um, In the case of nerve agents, that's, that's called hydrolysis. You basically add a molecule of water across the bond, separating it into two pieces. And those two pieces are innocuous potentially and you're done in the case of mustard there are two common ways to decontaminate it one is it turns out there's a sulfur atom in mustard and if you oxidize that sulfur atom to make what's called a sulfoxide that molecule is relatively innocuous uh, you also can remove the chlorine atoms you mentioned are in mustard. You can do that by actually extracting a molecule of HCl, is, is what happens, and you end up with a double bond in your carbon framework. Um, that too inactivates mustard.
1: And so I was reading, and correct me if this is not true, that in some cases when it was a person who had been exposed to mustard, they would literally just cover them in bleach.
0: So bleach is a very effective way to oxidize sulfur. And that's uh, the reason that you might want to use it. And there are other bleach-like substances that are used in personal decontamination. Chloramines is uh, another kind of molecule that can do that. So yes, that would be a typical decon technique.
1: Charming. (laughs) And in one of the papers that you sent me, um, I found these papers completely fascinating, and I will be linking to them um, on our website. Um, the paper mentioned that there has been – they found a decontamination kit from the Yom Kippur War that had been used by the Egyptians and developed by the Soviets, and it was a kit containing moist towelettes – and when I think of moist towelettes, I think of, you know, a little moist towelettes that you use when you eat lobster or something. Can you tell me about decontamination moist towelettes? Is that a thing?
0: Yeah, sure. So uh, those are quite typical for personal decontamination. And the towelette is impregnated with – so I mentioned you you want these things that can break the bonds that make the molecules reactive. Uh, and so in a, a nerve agent, for instance – I. I we mentioned, I think a little earlier, you can have these phosphorus oxygen or phosphorus nitrogen bonds. And if you want to break those, you you have to add something across them. And I mentioned water previously, if it's hydrolysis. So you'd make a a new pOH bond where there used to be that reactive bond. And the thing you knocked off the oxygen or the nitrogen, you just put a proton on it. That's the other part of the water that's there. Water itself, though, is not a great a great thing for keeping a towel moist for a very long time. And uh, as we all know, it kind of evaporates after a while. So typically what you'll use is a combination of a little bit of water and a little bit of an alcohol. So an alcohol also has an OH. It's just that the other end, instead of being another H, is a, an alkyl chain, for example, a, a hydrocarbon. And those can be much less volatile. Most people are familiar, let's say, with uh, isopropanol so rubbing alcohol. Uh, it, it's relatively volatile, but if I just keep adding carbons to that alcohol, it will become less and less and less volatile, but it stays a liquid. And so it's a mixture of kind of longer chain alcohols, uh, something a little bit like ethylene glycol, for example, that people use as antifreeze. People know that's not terribly uh, volatile. And also made basic. And the more basic it is, the more effective it is at attacking phosphorus and breaking that reactive bond. And so it it feels a little bit slimy in addition to being moist, but it is quite effective for most nerve agents.
1: And to be clear... (laughs) If anyone is listening to this podcast and happens to be exposed to a chemical weapon, a regular moist toilet is not going to help you. These are specialty.
0: <laughs> yeah, a regular moist toilet won't be basic enough, essentially. It will still have some nice little alcohols and the like in it uh, that have the same effect of keeping it moist, but you really need that basicity in order to be more effective at hydrolyzing the nerve agent.
1: And we talked a little bit about mustard gas and how you, know, you can bathe someone in bleach. But you can't just up and swallow bleach once you have been poisoned internally, once something has kind of gotten inside you. Um, What are some options for when people get poisoned by chemical weapons?
0: Well, if you've (sighs) inhaled mustard you're in deep trouble because it will blister your lungs. So those who die from mustard gas, that tends to be the mechanism of death, is you basically drown in your own fluids as your lungs fill up. Mm-hmm. And what you can do for that is essentially nothing. Uh, you try to give them enough oxygen that they stick around and hope that the lungs repair themselves over time. Um, nerve agents, so there are treatments for nerve agent. Um, and actually, soldiers usually have two things. They have a pre-treatment, and then they have a treatment. And so if you recall that the the mechanism of action of the nerve agent is to shut down acetylcholinesterase. So the pre-treatment is this molecule called peritostigmine bromide. So I, I took peritostigmine bromide during the first Gulf War, and its effect is essentially to be a bad nerve agent. That is, it ties up your acetylcholinesterase as well. It just doesn't do a perfect job of it. And as a result, when the nerve agent comes along, there's some acetylcholinesterase that it can't affect because it's already been affected by the pretreatment. And the pretreated stuff can be regenerated because that pretreatment wasn't so good. So if you like, you poison yourself a little to protect yourself against the poison that's a lot stronger.
1: So that, to be clear, when you're so when you're talking about um, the enzyme acetylcholinesterase, there's going to be like a a pocket um, in that enzyme that would usually break down acetylcholine. So acetylcholine would go in the pocket, um, that, and then a nerve agent would block that pocket, it, and you're.
0: It, it does block it and it yeah. does so in a way that it never comes out of the pocket. So it's permanently blocked.
1: And so that's a full agonist. And so, or antagonist. That's a full antagonist at your acetylcholinesterase. And then your pretreatment here would be, say, a partial antagonist?
0: Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. So it's, it goes in and it makes the same connection to the enzyme that the nerve agent does. It's just that that connection is reversible. And so it's possible to regenerate activity with a little bit of time.
1: So you take this pre-treatment, presumably, when you know you're going into an area that's been contaminated.
0: Or has the potential to be. So right. there, at least for the first Gulf War, there was a lot of concern that uh, the Iraqi army was uh, not only equipped with chemical weapons, but had the will and intent to use them.
1: And so then there's also a post-treatment. Right. Um, after exposure, what's that one?
0: So that's a, a little injector kit, essentially, and it contains two things. Um, there is a something that's designed to actually go after the modified acetylcholinesterase and regenerate it. So your body can't do that, but the, the 2-PAM chloride is the name of the molecule. It's an oxime, which is a certain kind of chemical functionality again. And that oxime is capable of breaking the bond between phosphorus and the acetylcholinesterase. So that should be regenerating your acetylcholinesterase functionality. At the same time, you also inject yourself with atropine. And atropine, if you like, is a poison in the opposite direction of having all this acetylcholine running around that is not being broken down. So it basically gets in the way of where that neurotransmitter would go. So that's a very dangerous thing, right? You're basically trying to balance two poisons such that you're not convulsing to death, but at the same time, you're still able to breathe and move your muscles. Uh, Atropine would paralyze you typically. Um, It's like poison dart, poison frogs uh, create these kinds of compounds that shut down response to neurotransmitters.
1: So now you work on decontamination, um, de- how to decontaminate from nerve agents is, is one of your projects. Um, and you're working on something called metal organic frameworks um, that help sop up things like the nerve agent Soman, which is similar to sarin. Um, when I think about metal organic frameworks, I think it sounds like scaffolding, but that can't be right. <laughs> Can you oh, talk about metal exact- organic frameworks
0: and what they're for? Sure. I would say you're exactly right. Um, a, a metal organic framework is a, a three-dimensional crystalline substance. And for those who have ever played with Tinker Toys, which, hm, I'm too old to know whether modern children buy Tinker Toys or not. But, uh, if this was an old toy that consisted of sort of sticks and these hubs into which you could stick the sticks, And the hubs would have many connection points so that you could have sticks going in various directions. So a metal-organic framework is like that. It has these hubs. They're called nodes, typically. And the node has some metals in it, maybe only one metal, but maybe a collection of metals that are joined together by oxygen. That would be a little metal oxide cluster. And then there are organic molecules that bind to these clusters. And these organic molecules have multiple binding sites themselves and so they can be used to make connections between multiple clusters and nature causes these substances to create certain kinds of crystals and the reason they're interesting is that the crystals have these can can be designed to have these huge void spaces in them so if your organic linker is a really big molecule and it's let's say your node has six connections so a cube for instance has six faces So you could imagine having this little linker that goes out from all six faces of a cube to the next cube over. And if you've got big long linkers, now you're going to have the space in between all your cubes. And that space can be exploited for chemistry purposes. So you can think of it as being a, a little reactor, maybe. If molecules can get into that space and also inside that space is some reactive functionality that you've designed into your linker or into your nodes, it can react there. And then it floats away. And so our interest is in using metal organic frameworks as catalysts to decompose the nerve agent. And the the benefit of the framework, if you will, so catalysis is a very general term. We actually we've already talked about one: acetylcholinesterase, the enzyme acetylcholinesterase, is a catalyst. Right? Its job is to break down acetylcholine, and it does it again and again and again. So that's what catalysts are good for: it making reactions occur more quickly, uh, with less energy, and they do it again and again and again. So you could have a catalyst that breaks down nerve agents. The general problem with catalysts is how long do they last? Um, Because maybe they're subject to breaking down themselves. And if they're just floating around free in a solution often, and we call that homogeneous catalysis, if they're free in solution, they generally break down relatively quickly, more quickly than you'd like if your job is to keep people from dying. Um, On the other hand, if they can be sequestered away somewhere where they're protected from the surrounding environment and from each other, because maybe a problem is when two catalysts see each other, uh, then maybe they can last much longer. And so metal-organic frameworks have this potential to isolate catalysts, keep them held in a certain place so that they can be reactive for longer and be more effective. And that's that's one of the key uses. That's called heterogeneous catalysis, by the way, because these, these metal-organic frameworks are solids. So they don't dissolve into solution, but solutions can pass in and out of them. And uh, the reactivity then takes place at the solid-liquid interface or the solid gas interface that can be used against gases as well.
1: So it is kind of a scaffold in that it's kind of this structure that's like a scaffold, and inside the scaffold is hooked in these catalysts that are like hooked into the inside of those empty pockets. Right. And the chemical weapon comes in and reacts with those catalysts in the empty pocket.
0: Great, great, great way to think about it. And the the reason they're so exciting, if you like, within the heterogeneous catalysis space is that they're crystalline. So we have pretty powerful tools to characterize their structure and to kind of understand where all the atoms are and try to, you know, build the atoms in rational ways that, that makes them effective as catalysts.
1: So this sounds when you explain it as like, oh, it's a scaffold and you hook little catalysts inside the scaffold and then it decontaminates things. This sounds very simple, but obviously there are many challenges. (laughs) What are some of the challenges of working with these metal organic frameworks?
0: Sure. Um, A a significant uh, design principle, I suppose I'll I'll call it, is that you certainly need to have uh, sufficient transport of the material you want in and out of the MOF. I'll call it a MOF for short, metal organic framework abbreviated abbreviate as MOF. Um, so you want your void spaces, for instance, to be big enough that the molecules you want to react can easily get in and out. Um, I, I said that the beauty of metal organic frameworks is that by virtue of their crystallinity and, uh, you know, characterization techniques, we can put the atoms in very precise places so that's more a vision statement than a reduction to practice.
1: Got to have goals.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so a, a lot of the challenge, frankly, is just, you know, designing the system you want to design effectively because the rules for synthesis are we, are, are still being explored in some sense. This is a relatively new space in chemistry, the, the metal organic framework design space. Um, you also want to... Ensure robustness that catalysts last for a long time. Um, and I, I think I'll mention one other thing just because there's a different way to use the MOF that is is worth talking about. We've been discussing so far making the MOF itself a catalyst by hanging things on the scaffold. It also can be very effective at protecting a catalyst inside that void space, right? So it's not connected to the framework, but the framework contains the useful catalyst. And uh, a collaborator of mine at Northwestern University, his name's Omar Farha, and he also works with another collaborator, Joe Hupp, um, has been exploring putting enzymes that break down nerve agents into metal organic frameworks. So sometimes the void space can be so big that it'll actually encapsulate an enzyme. And they've had enormous success, very exciting success with putting in an enzyme that breaks down nerve agents. And as a result, it becomes very stable compared to just floating around in solution uh, and can last a very long time and and be exquisitely effective.
1: So instead of being hooked onto the inside of the scaffold, These are kind of like the scaffold is kind of like a bubble holding.
0: Yeah, it's like a shipping bottle.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, like a little shipping container. (laughs) And you've got, um, I know you published a paper that you have a MOF, a metal organic framework, that can degrade things like Soman. Um, Would that also work against things like sarin or Novichok?
0: So we've explicitly looked at, uh, Sarin and also VX, as a matter of fact, and, uh, they work just fine. Yes, they, they are reactive. Um, Novichok has not been tested in the laboratory. We actually have some ongoing research designed to look at exactly that question. The, the reaction in question continues to be this somewhat you know, boring to a chemist, but absolutely essential to uh, reality uh, of hydrolysis. So really the, the nerve agent kind of floats in. It sees a certain kind of functionality. It's called a Lewis acid. Actually, it's, it's a, a metal that kind of binds to the nerve agent and makes it more susceptible to hydrolysis. So there's every reason to expect that it would also catalyze, uh, Novichok decomposition, decontamination. But as I say, it's still ongoing calculations. And, and it's, I should emphasize, by the way, so I'm a theoretician. For me, a nerve agent is extraordinarily non-lethal because it just appears as a pretty picture on my computer screen. Um, the actual experiments that are done with collaborators are done behind razor wire on army bases in very uh, well-protected facilities with lots of safety equipment, um, but does verify most of the uh, computational predictions.
1: Now, these metal-organic frameworks that you've been working with, are they, you know, they're they're atomic level. They're very small. Are they expensive? Can you produce them on mass? I mean, presumably you'd need a lot of this,
0: right? So, good question. Um, it turns out that this colleague I mentioned, Omar Farha, so he is a, a co-founder of probably the f- the only company to presently be selling moth materials in you know the the economy. But they have certain materials that they're uh, successfully marketing to industry that uh, do things like store, hold toxic gases in a certain way that makes them more safe and can be released for use in uh, various kinds of chemical operations. Uh, And they produce at least one of these MOFs, it's called NU1000, NU for Northwestern University, uh, on a very large scale and relatively cheaply cheaply enough to, you know, make gigatons that might then end up being distributed all around the world for use as possible decon agents. Probably not quite to that level yet, but not far away. I would say it's, you know, at that stage, you're talking engineering as opposed to chemistry. But I think the engineering potential is there. And And, and I, um, I mention one thing as long as as long as we're talking about this, please. So one of the reasons that moths are of potential interest is we talked about how protective suits up when we discussed it I mostly emphasized that their goal was to be sort of impermeable right so you protect yourself by just not letting it get to you but eventually you can overwhelm however much is there and the remaining will See no more adsorbent and just gets through. So what you'd really like a protective suit or a filter to do is not just to block stuff, but to destroy it. So you'd like to impregnate the suit or the filter with the catalyst. And so that's one of the potential uses for these metal organic frameworks that's pretty exciting is uh, there have been demonstrations of how to incorporate them into cloth, essentially. So they bind to fibers and the like. In which case now you'd have a catalyst that can be breaking down the nerve agent. Uh, and creating just innocuous materials, as opposed to just trying to create a barrier.
1: And you mentioned just now, you know, you could put that in a suit. Um, Would you also, say, spray it on the ground to get rid of, you know, environmental contamination? Could you, is this, this is not something you could feed to people?
0: The question of whether or not you can swallow a moth, I don't know, has been addressed in clinical trials yet. But um, most of these moths are made... the, the ones that are designed for these kinds of purposes are made with pretty non-toxic stuff. So NU-1000, which we mentioned is zirconium. Zirconium is not offensive to your body. That said, that doesn't mean that it circulates through the bloodstream easily and uh, can encounter agent and the like all that readily. So it's not clear yet that it has an in vivo use. But uh, y- your original question also of could you use it for area decontamination Yes, potentially i'm not sure you know sprinkling on the ground you'd need an awful lot to cover a lot of ground, obviously. Uh, there tends to be a question of how do you mix it effectively you'd like to you'd like your catalyst not to have to be used in huge amounts, so you need some way to get the the bad stuff to the catalyst
1: so how is it being used? You mentioned there's a company that's producing this stuff how How are they using it now?
0: So the moth they sell, which I think is proprietary, I don't know that it's, I don't think it's NU1000, and I'm not sure I know the structure. But there are, um, if I remember properly, there are certain toxic gases that are used in making computer chips. Uh, so there's, you know, these various processes as you layer chip surfaces uh in order to build up devices and the gases themselves are extraordinarily dangerous and usually are just shipped in gas cylinders right you keep it at a high pressure you open a valve out comes the gas but if that cylinder is damaged you have an explosive release because of the pressure inside so a moth by virtue of its of its nature if you will so we talked about this void space on the inside well you can define a surface area if you like, of all these molecules that are in the moth. And because it's full of, of voids, the molecules that define the edges of that void, they have accessible surface area. So the way activated carbon, which we've talked about previously, works is essentially it just presents all this surface area that's kind of sticky to other organic molecules. So it gloms onto those molecules and they don't leave. And the organic linkers in moths can be very like that as well. So they're generally formed of carbon surfaces that look a bit like activated carbon. And because of that structure, they have enormous surface areas. So you can have, you know, an entire football field's worth of surface area in tiny fractions of a gram of uh, these moth materials. So one of their exciting uses is as gas adsorbents. That is, instead of needing to use a lot of pressure to push gas into a small amount of area, it's the energy of binding to the surface area of the moth. And so I, I mentioned this in the context of the the company's um product, which is designed to now hold this toxic gas not under high pressure, but actually at ambient pressure. So if you break the if you break the uh, the container, there's no driving force for this gas to get away. Instead what you do is you kinda heat it up in order to get the gas off the moth, and then if you cool it again, the gas will reabsorb to the moth. Um, but it, there are also a lot of interest in using these moths as gas adsorbents for other kinds of gases. For instance, carbon dioxide might be a great way to sequester carbon dioxide, uh, in order to prevent release into the atmosphere. So it would be a filter that would capture it and then you can, you know, take it off again and store it somewhere safely. Um, interest in using it to separate gases like nitrogen and methane. So natural gas is uh, ideally sweet, which means pure, but actually it tends to come with a bunch of nitrogen in it, which is just, you know, atmospheric nitrogen. And you'd like to somehow separate those two. And if you can do it with a moth, that can be a very economical way. Lots of people are going after that. So these are... There's a lot of technologies associated with moths, which is why they are a a kind of a hot area of research right now.
1: These chemical agents are terrifying. They're, they're horrifying (laughs) to think that, you know, suddenly the air you breathe, the ground you walk on is deadly. They cause horrible suffering. Why do people do
0: this? (laughs) You need to interview a philosopher for that one, don't you? Um, you know i I think people who are in the military or have had military experience have a somewhat a somewhat more nuanced view in the sense of there's a lot of different ways to kill people. Uh, if you believe killing people is morally wrong, then you know you don't really care how it's done. it's just morally wrong. Uh, on the other hand, there is in human civilization, sort of an accepted principle that sometimes war can be just, sometimes war is necessary. And at that stage, if you're willing to accept that you're going to kill the other side, um, I'm not sure it's any more moral to do it with a 50 caliber machine gun than it is with a chemical weapon. That said, I think the potential for chemical weapons to be misused as weapons of terror, as weapons of mass destruction against civilian populations, You know that's what makes them terrifying, and and the added aspect, I think, as you pointed out, you know, this is a volatile uh, substance. For instance, you don't necessarily see it; Uh, it may not have a smell, or if it does, the people who smelled it haven't been able to report it to us. Um, for nerve agents, at least, you know, so it attacks you soundlessly and smelllessly and suddenly you're a victim. Um, I I think that obviously is what terrifies people much like other weapons of mass destruction.
1: Well, Chris, this has been horrifying, terrifying, fascinating, incredibly educational. Thank you so much for talking with us.
0: Uh, It's been a real pleasure. I I enjoyed sharing things and I, I take full responsibility for any mistakes I made. (laughs)
1: We've linked to more information about Chris Kramer and his research at scienceforthepeople.ca. There, you'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe to the show, or leave us a review. You can also find our Patreon page. We are ad-free because of you. So please send us some support in the form of a few monthly dollars. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People.
2: Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Schell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skepchik Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skepchik.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me,
0: Rochelle Saunders.